Hello and welcome to the didactic recordings from Project Echo, West Vic PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network. This session took place on Thursday the 20th of August 2020. So uh, good morning everyone and welcome to Project Echo, West Vic PHN Hub. And this is the COVID-19 Echo Network, Series 2, Session 6. And we're titling this Stepping Up Our Residential Aged Care Pandemic Response Planning, and this is part four. So good morning and thank you for joining us as we begin to wrap up our four-part series on outbreak prevention and response planning in residential aged care facilities. In the first three parts, we've discussed the Commonwealth Plan for RACs and the state plans for health service rapid response. We've discussed the roles and responsibilities that primary care workforce can play in outbreak prevention and response through their roles in both direct patient care, goals of care discussions, and as advocates for patients and families. We've learned of a sector made vulnerable due to many factors, and these will be brought to light in the Royal Commission into Aged Care, but we've also learned of the complexity of pandemic response planning as it requires collaboration across the three sectors of aged care, primary care, and tertiary services. And while we've all been heard media coverage of, um, you know, some governance issues at the Commonwealth and state levels, we've reflected upon our own sense of agency and responsibility at our local and regional level. We've heard stories of both grassroots and service sector strategies to build more joined up and coordinated care for residents in our regions. And so today we're going to bring all that together and reflect upon what we've learned and what we need to continue to take forward and what we can translate about this kind of inquiry into this group to other vulnerable groups and groups made vulnerable by the COVID-19 pandemic. But before we get into these cracking discussions, I'd like to now open up the meeting with an acknowledgement to country, our agenda this morning. So we've got our infectious diseases update by uh, Associate Professor Dem Friedman. Um, she'll be providing a COVID update and also discussing uh, outbreak management in RACs and, and, and I guess extending that to other residential care facilities. Um, we Apologies from um, Rachel Cowan this morning who couldn't be with us, um, so she'll provide the Ballarat update. We've got a residential aged care response preparedness. Um, Lisa Clinic, Associate Professor Lisa Clinic comes back uh, to talk to us about some reflections about what we've learned over the last few weeks and considering what we might take forward. Um, we've got a case presentation by GP Dr Josh Vai. He's been working on a local outbreak in Geelong. And uh, we'll, as we do, have our rapid fire. Uh, we'll have a reflection, actually. I haven't popped it up there, but we're going to have a reflection by um, disability sector advocate Jackie Pearce. Um, we'll have our rapid five answers, so pop them all in the chat by about 8.20 and we'll take all the questions that you've got up till about 8.20 in the chat to sum up those infectious diseases and aged care questions. And uh, we'll have a, if there's um, the need, we'll have an update and we'll move on to our health pathways update at the end by um, Kate Graham. So with that, um, I'd now like to um, pass over to our first speaker, Associate Professor Deb Freeman. Thanks, Deb. Thanks very much, Bianca. Good morning, everybody. So 20th of August, 2020, there's about 7,000 active cases of COVID-19 infection in Victoria with increasing daily numbers into the single digits now within our region. Um, the numbers overall in Victoria, we're having cases in the kind of 200s, which is a significant relative decrease from more than 600 a day about three weeks ago. Um, there are still 44 people in intensive care within Victoria and nearly 700 people in hospital. So that's a reasonable proportion still. So we're not out of the woods. Um, there's also a significant number of healthcare worker infections. Some hospitals have been 
plagued by this more than others. In particular, right now, there are enormous problems in Frankston with more than 50 infected healthcare workers and many other healthcare workers furloughed because they're close contacts. In terms of our active cases in the Barwon Southwest region, we've got a few remaining cases in the Colac Otway region, largely secondary to the end of the Australian Lamb Company outbreak and a little bit of community spread within the region. We've got some cases in Warrnambool, seven cases secondary to infections arising from the quarry um, and then spread into a family there. We've got some cases in Portland, secondary to one person. And then in Greater Geelong, we've got some, we've got a new cluster in Corio among young people of culturally diverse backgrounds, but that's largely under control now and we're still seeing the end effects of the outbreaks at both Golden Farms Chickens and the Opal Aged Care outbreak which we'll hear more about from Josh later. In total the number of active cases in Barwon Southwest is currently numbered at 129 but these numbers will decrease daily as we continue to clear cases who meet criteria for clearance for the end of their infection. So the active case numbers that you see within all of Victoria and more specifically within our region are heavily influenced by um, a backlog in clearance, but we're, which we're now getting on top of and hopefully by next week we should be not just within our region but within all of Victoria, we should be more up to date in terms of clearance. Um, looking back, if we look at this second wave, that we've seen increasing numbers from the end of um, June, early July, and now decreasing numbers from about the 4th of August. If we look at the doubling time most recently, if we go back a week, our doubling time now is 24 days. And last week it was 19 days. Before that, it was 12 days. So we can see that the doubling time is getting longer. But unfortunately, the proportion of people within Victoria that have an unknown source of infection is 21%. So that's nearly a that's um, a little concerning. So between a fifth and a quarter of cases, we don't know what they're linked to. I should stress, however, that within regional Victoria, the majority of cases are linked to other cases. They're not unlinked cases, which is obviously very pleasing. So I guess just to sort of wrap up what I've said, one of the questions that's going to come up is where to from here? We know how to reduce cases and that's hard lockdown, hard border closures. But at which point and what number of cases per day will be the safe point at which to allow reopening? And we know last time when we reopened, we had about nine weeks in which we had freedom and we didn't see an increase in cases. And at that time, we had excellent control and were seemingly headed towards elimination. But I guess this has taught us how quickly things can change. We're probably likely still weeks away from really getting to the level of control that we need to be at to allow the public health response to completely catch up and to also get control of the many hundreds of outbreaks within the state. And obviously the thing that's going to challenge us is how we maintain compliance in the community when we're asking people to do this for ongoing periods of time. Um, a little bit of data that I just wanted to quickly present. Within um, our region, we've assessed our data and we've looked at how common the spread is within households. 
and we found that in 46% of households in the Barwon Southwest region, there's at least one other person that becomes infected. Now, this is heavily influenced by some outbreaks in both a chicken factory and Australian lamb company in which there were many people living within a household, many adults. But it still remains to be said that household um, transmission is very, very common. The other thing that I just wanted to bring up was something from the international literature. Um, there was a study looking at aged care um, where they looked um, after an initial outbreak, they then looked five weeks into it. And maybe this is kind of not that dissimilar to the Opal aged care outbreak that we've had in our region. And after five weeks, they did serology and they found that 82% of surviving residents tested positive and 75% of staff tested positive. And this was a significantly lower proportion than those who had tested positive based on swabs. Um, that partly does... Um, indicate one of the reasons for the department recommendation that when you've got an outbreak in aged care, you should continue to do serial testing on those that are uninfected because ultimately the rate of infection is so high within aged care. The other thing um, to mention is that there was a study in China looking at close contacts and the proportion that become infected. And they looked across all sectors and they found overall about 4% of people who are close contacts of a case of COVID-19 become infected. Highest risk being in households, lowest risk being something like a transient close contact in something like public transportation, for example. Um, and so that kind of brings me towards the end of what I wanted to say within Bowen Southwest. Um, I wanted to just briefly present um, Rachel's slides. So on this slide, you can see some key contact details for both Bowen Health contact tracing and also for the Ballarat Health Service for anyone who's unaware of that. Um, and then we might just look at the Ballarat um, information that Rachel had presented. So there's 16 active cases, although this is always different to what's reported in the media. Um, the number in the media always is um, an over-reflection of the true numbers. Um, the, the numbers are also falling in the um, regions that Ballarat are tracing. So they only had one case in the last 24 hours. In terms of community transmission, they're getting more control over some of the clusters and they're doing all of their contact tracing. They've got a phone number there for the first on-call infectious diseases physician um, that is able to um, support contact tracing. And their new message is, it's not flu, it's COVID, so please get tested. And I kind of like that slogan. And I think there's another slide, yeah. So just in terms of the region that um, Ballarat um, looks at, there are currently three cases in Horsham, two in West Wimmera, one in the Central Goldfields, one in Ararat, um, and three in Moorable, um, which are unrelated single cases. And I'm pretty sure that's Bacchus Marsh, where they've had a number of cases yesterday, which are all spreading from metropolitan Melbourne. Um, and so finally, just to touch on... Um, outbreak management in aged care facilities. Josh is really going to speak more about what's happened exactly in the field, so to speak. But I guess I wanted to mention what I see as the major cornerstones um, to management of an aged care facility outbreak. And a lot of these things have been mentioned in our previous weeks. But I guess the cornerstones for me are 
Number one, coordination of sectors, because there's a number of different sectors working at this simultaneously. It can be confusing about who all the stakeholders are, but we need good coordination to make sure that we don't have duplication and that we maximise our response. The second thing is the decisions about goals of care, and Anita Phillips gave an excellent um, discussion last week about the importance of goals of care and how to have those difficult conversations. The third point is decisions about care location, cohorting, and all the things that you could do either within the facility or outside of the facility to take care of aged care residents. And then the fourth part of the puzzle is attention to staffing, which becomes one of the most challenging aspects of managing an outbreak in aged care. Um, that was all that I had, um, and I, um, I'm happy to hand over now. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Deb. All right, I'd now like to um, invite Associate Professor Lisa Clinic, Director of Aged Care at Ballarat Health Services, now to present. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Bianca. I presented to you a few weeks ago, and um, since then uh, we have had a bit of time to do some further reflection in regards to our response at Ballarat Health Service in um, Bill Crawford Lodge, but also uh, we have obviously been uh, contacted by the Department of Health as well about our learnings, and so... I, we have moved on a little bit and and I do absolutely recognise about what's going on um, in the region, um, particularly down at Geelong Opal as well as in Melbourne and the continual crisis that's unfolding in aged care, and which very much um, concerns everybody, I'm sure. The, so what I wanted to talk really about today is, is some further reflections and extensions um, on what's going on in aged care and what I'm seeing and particularly how... Um, primary care can can support um, aged care facilities and also the staff. Um, I'm not going to go over the goals of care planning, but that is so essential and important. I know that there was um, a big discussion around that last week, and so I'll, I will leave that there. But what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing from my colleagues, particularly in Melbourne, um, is around the community losing confidence in the aged care sector because of what's going on uh, and the continual um, media uh, and bad press, as well as the Royal Commission uh, that occurred also last week. And as much as I absolutely agree what came out of the Royal Commission and um, watched it uh, with great interest, uh, it continues to show a, a sector that is not only struggling, it is absolutely in crisis, and it was in crisis before COVID-19 occurred, and the Royal Commission were very clear about that as well. What's happening down in Melbourne is uh, when we're furloughing staff um, in, from aged care outbreak um, facilities, only about 40% of them are actually coming back. The other 60% are wanting to come back and work in aged care. And I'm, I'm very, very concerned that um, uh, we're going to lose a whole generation of people, uh, healthcare workers who want to work in aged care. And from my perspective, I think you actually need the best and the brightest people and the most skilled people working uh, with older people in residential aged care um, because it's not acute care. We don't have all of the, the, um, the resources that acute care have. Uh, the nurses and the doctors work very, very closely together with the families to provide excellent care. And, uh, but we don't have uh, doctors on site 24 hours a day. We are quite dependent on assessments from, from nursing staff. So we need really well-prepared and skilled nurses working in aged care. 
as well as the support staff around them. So the, the, the trying to prevent loss of confidence in the sector um, and supporting aged care workforce, um, and I, I, I would imagine, I, I haven't looked into this, but I would imagine that some of that does extend into primary care as well, that I could imagine that some GPs are going, I don't want to go and work in aged care, look what's going on, it's all too hard. And once again, um, having passionate and very skilled uh, GPs coming and supporting um, residents in aged care is, is such a, a, uh, an important factor for quality care. I might go to the next slide. Thank you. So um, another thing that is coming out of, of um, residential aged care and particularly down in Melbourne, and it happened in Newmarch as well and also around the world, is that um, a whole lot of staff are coming into aged care or working in resi aged care that have never worked in aged care before. So we're seeing um, staff coming from um, big um, healthcare facility or services in Melbourne um, coming into support or uh, the, the residents in major outbreak facilities. We're also getting staff coming from interstate. And what I'm hearing is that they're, they're turning up and being absolutely shocked at what they're walking into. It's, it's basically a, a disaster area. There's, it's often very dirty. There's um, a PPE um, based uh, around the place. Uh, residents may um, not have had, uh, may not have had hygiene attended to, incontinence care, and a whole lot of things. So basic care may absolutely be um, lacking. There's nobody in charge, uh, so that clinical leadership isn't there to, to um, you know, coordinate what's going on. Um, residents may not have been um, had meals or hydration, and medications may not be given. And that that is quite shocking, even, even when I say that out loud, that that, that, is, that has occurred. But when you lose 100% or 90% of your staff in a, in a couple of hours, um, that's, that's the reality of it. And so these staff are walking into it and getting quite traumatised. Um, so we're, we're looking at, and I fed this back also to the department, about how do we prepare people going into these facilities so that they, they know what they're walking into and that it is absolutely not going to be an ideal situation. But how can, how can they actually start working straight away rather than getting caught up in the disarray that they've walked into? The other thing that I have, I have seen and, and um, have had feedback is that acute nurses coming into our residential aged care have a very different perception of what deterioration is and what care is, particularly to older people. And um, they may make judgments that are incorrect in regards to care or um, make um, or, or not actually understand the entire um, history of a resident. One, one um, example of this is a, a facility down in Melbourne that had a major outbreak. Um, a resident there had not had, he, he had Parkinson, Parkinson's and he had not had his medications for about four days. And um, I know that you have to have your medication for Parkinson's. Uh, it's very particular timing. And so he froze. He was frozen and very, very stiff. And the staff, the new staff that came in said, uh, 
put him onto an end-of-life program because they, they, they identify that he deteriorated that much, that he's now not moving and um, will now go into end-of-life. And th there was actually a, a, a permanent staff member there who said, no, the issue is, is that where they haven't had their, their medications. So he actually was a, quite a vibrant person. We, we need to get his medications sorted. And this family stepped in and I, I would imagine also the GP stepped in and that person was actually um, transferred over to acute care for active treatment to get them back up to um, the state and get their medications back up to normal. So I think that that just is an example of where some people are coming in with the best intention and it's absolutely great that they're volunteering to go into facilities to support but not, and I'm just looking at some of these um, comments down the side, not having that clinical lead and that person who actually knows those residents and also the, the, the input from the GP who also knows those residents really well may cause um, decisions or clinical decisions um, and treatment um, to not be the best outcome. The... The other uh, thing that I've, I'm, I also chair the Public Sector Residential Aged Care Leadership Group and I saw Deb Jevisoni is on this Zoom as well, who used to be a very active um, member of that committee as well. And, and as th that committee has the most senior um, nurses in Victoria um, represented uh, on that committee and it's, it's, um, it's supported by DHHS. And we've actually very actively in the last week or so started using our advocacy role. Um, we've written to the Minister uh, and the Premier, uh, putting down some of our concerns around coordination, exactly what Deb said, around coordination of um, outbreaks, around the information flow um, and the doubling up of information from DHHS and, and the Commonwealth, as well as um, just a couple of things that I just spoke about, community confidence, and um, and caring for our staff. Just to let you know that the minister is very, very interested in um, in groups' uh, opinions. And uh, we met with um, the minister. I wrote the letter on Monday and I had a meet, meeting with him on Tuesday morning. They are very keen to hear from, um, from uh, particularly uh, clinicians and, and healthcare workers in regards to how, how we can... Um, influence or protect our facilities, but also help with an outbreak. Uh, support to families. I would imagine as GPs that this is something that is um, very much on your radar. Uh, I know that in the facilities that do have outbreaks, that families are wanting to remove their uh, family member who's in care. And that's quite... Uh, it was State Minister Rowena, um, that removing a resident from an active <laughs> outbreak facility is a really challenging um, decision to make. And OPAN, which is the um, Old Persons Advocacy Network, um, did a webinar on this yesterday and had about a 1,000 people turn up to it. Uh, the... The issue with, with obviously, there's obviously issues with taking people out of um, residential aged care in the first place. So they're, in, they're in care because they need that 24-hour support. Um, but families are, are very, very concerned about their loved one um, 
becoming infected and, and then dying, I suppose. So uh, how, do, how do we support families in making those decisions? And uh, it was suggested at the OPAN meeting uh, webinar yesterday that the GPs actually have a huge role in this around supporting families and giving advice. Um, I do. I know that the families at um, Ballarat Health Services facilities definitely contact the GPs for support and um, advice regarding care, and I would expect that this would be a very similar thing. The the other thing, and I, I'm I'm running out of time here, but the other thing that is is also cropping up in residential aged care, particularly in the outbreak areas, is um, or facilities is the, the increased use of psychotropic medications as chemical restraint, particularly around with residents who have got cognitive impairment and are mobile. And um, that actually is, is concerning because psychotropic medications cause so many extra problems with older people. And that has um, not only become an issue or it has, has not only been highlighted from a DHHS point of view, but the um, Aged Care Quality and Safety Commissioner, who's at a federal level, is also identifying this and, and coming into facilities and not only looking at infection control um, uh, procedures, but also looking at medication management and chemical restraint. I'll go on to the next slide. So... Basically, I'll go through this very quickly because I've gone through it mostly, that um, from a, a Ballarat Health Service point of view, uh, on our reflections, and I've raised this last time, is that um, we are very eager and will engage with our primary care workforce much, much earlier. And we've got already communications um, built around that now. And we're not only with the outbreak um, GPs who were involved in the outbreak, but the entire um, GP um, group that comes to Ballarat Health Service. Uh, our, we we, we realised that our communication channels weren't as robust as they could have been to our primary care workforce. And I think that that, was, um, that, that actually was lacking and may have caused some delays in communication, but also delays in supporting people. Um, I'll go on to the next slide so that I can, can finish up. And I think that I, I've I'm in the lead, um, the hub cluster, which is a regional um, cluster that we're working on a regional plan, and we do now are looking, or we are now in looking at disability care and in-home care, and there are so many um, uh, similarities um, and learnings that I think disability care could learn from residential care and, and what's going on. There's definitely dif differences and, and I think that they absolutely need to be acknowledged and worked um, work between, but the similarities and the lessons can be translated, I think, across those different sectors. And um, I, I'm really looking forward to, to working with those sectors um, in the coming weeks. So I'll wrap up there, Bianca. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Lisa. That's fantastic. So pop any questions that you have for Lisa in the chat. And, uh, and I also know we've got Lisa Mitchell, geriatrician, here with us today. So any um, 
aged care questions could be answered either through the chat or at the end. Um, I'd like to just note um, and welcome that we've got a lot of people from the aged care sector. So it's really nice to see, um, you know, that we're coming together around this forum. And also, um, you know, welcome to all the GPs and practice nurses and managers across the West Vic region. And really nice to see some new names. So welcome to Project Echo. Um, okay, with this now, I'm gonna we're going to go traditional Project Echo style and move on to a case presentation. So I'd like to welcome um, GP Josh by. So that concludes the didactic component of this session. I can't bring you the case presentation, I'm sorry, due to uh, patient confidentiality, but come join the discussion next week. We're going to finish with a reflection from disability sector advocate Jackie Pierce. Um, I'd like to now bring on, um, in, uh, introduce our Jackie Pierce. Jackie was with us for our last um, series and um, Jackie is a disability sector advocate has been working in the sector for over 30 years and I've invited her just to provide a reflection because last um, series she posed the question what can we learn from the residential aged care facility um, outbreak preparedness and planning that we could apply to the disability sector so thanks Jackie um, you've got uh, about three minutes thank you thanks Bianca uh, good morning, everybody. Um, Lisa, I'm really happy to hear that you're potentially going to take on some work up in Ballarat around um, some cross-sector, and I'd be more than happy to talk with you about that offline because I think that's one of the keys um, in terms of what we can do differently next time but also what we can currently do. So I just really wanted to touch base, and, and I'm not sure whether we can spend some more time in a later um, Project Echo session around the, the actual outbreaks that are happening in disability at the moment so they are talking about approximately 87 active cases across the state um, of which 21 are residents and 66 are staff so I think that's a real concern for me that 66 staff because they're staff who generally won't have had training around PPE so when I think about what we can do differently in disability and what GP uh, roles might be. I think there is that occupational educational role that we could have um, being played in the disability sector where we're not talking about medically trained staff by any stretch of the imagination. I think the goals of care and the advanced care planning. So um, I've done a lot of work with Jill Mann and the Barwon Health advanced care planning team around advanced care planning for non-competent people. Um, and that's been a really uh, critical piece of work and it needs to be broadened and I think that um, GPs can play a role in that because it's more challenging because we're generally talking about younger people. We're not talking about people who are at end of life, but we're talking about people who often have complex disability and health and medical needs who might be quite young and families often are really struggling to even start those conversations. So we did a, a project called Living Well and Dying Well um, around non-competent people. So I think that's another shared um Issue The coordination across the sectors, absolutely, that um, both Lisa and Deb talked about and Josh, I think. Uh, the care location, that's something some disability housing providers have done really well. They actually set up separate properties in the first wave that they knew they could shift any queries um, people who might have had queries around were they COVID, shift them out of their shared living situation to those other properties. So I think that was a really positive thing that some service providers did. The loss of confidence in the sector is another shared um, 
issue that we're finding in disability, whether it's in the group home situations or the in-home care, and I think um, Lisa touched on that. So we've done a lot of work in the in-home care, so that's where the person with a disability resides at home with their family, around reducing the number of staff not working across sites, etc. But I really wanted to clarify one thing um, which I, I shared with Bianca yesterday is that the majority of the outbreaks that are being referred to as disability accommodation are occurring in what are called supported residential services. Supported residential services are not your typical specialist disability accommodation. That's the language. Specialist disability accommodation is historically disability housing, group homes, CRUs, that sort of language that you would know. Um, SRSs are private, for-profit um, services that are run across the state of Victoria. They used to be called boarding houses and hostels. That's the language people might know them by. And the ones that are what are called pension-only level services are really one step above homelessness, like if, if we want to be really honest about what these services are. And they have people who are highly complex, mental health, brain injury, drug and alcohol issues, contact with the justice system. They often have no family. So they're even more vulnerable than the RAC population because they have no family advocate to support them. They, they are disconnected from their families. So often the only person working with that person who lives in an SRS is a GP. That's often the only primary care that that person's receiving. They are generally or often not NDIS funded people either. So they have limited or no supports. The Royal Commission into Abuse, Neglect, Exploitation and Violence, so that's the Disability Royal Commission that's happening at the same time as we speak, is hearing very similar issues around the COVID-19 to what the Royal Commission into Aged Care is hearing, so there's another similarity. Um, Jackie, I'm going to... Yep. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you for a sec because I'm thinking there's so much here and I'm actually thinking let's not rush it. Let's actually open up with this next week. I think that from what Deb described in the early piece, sorry to, sorry to interrupt just because I'm looking That's at time, nice. because I'm thinking about this early piece that Deb described in, um, in opening around households and understanding, getting a better understanding about transmission within households and with everything that you're describing and with the important roles that GPs play in caring for not only the residents but potentially caring for their families, caring for the workers that are actually going into these settings. There's probably quite a lot that GPs are doing around um, supporting, you know, this system. Next week's session, I think let's call it something like housing, crowding, caring, uh, thinking about the uh, vulnerabilities due to that housing situation and the lack of being able to be independent in self-care which I think Deb Friedman's highlighted as being, you know, a particular concern for COVID and why this is a weak spot in the system. Let's let's kick off next week with that. Um, and uh, so I'm going to give you um, I'm going to give you kind of a second to wrap up. There's going to be an evaluation in the chat after um, Jackie Pierce, um, you know, does a quick wrap up. Uh, Kate Graham will pull herself offline to give us a quick health pathways and uh, then we'll catch up with you all next week. Jackie, sorry I interrupted. Did you just want to finish us with a one piece for reflection before next week? Oh, absolutely. And thank you. And no worries for interrupting because I know it's a huge piece of work. Um, look, I think that the key thing that I would like to say is that disability care, very similar to aged care, it's 
broke, as in um, with private for profit sector moving in under the NDIS, we've got people putting profit before the clients themselves, and it's broken as in the lack of connectedness that that hasn't um, hasn't been occurring. So I think that's another key similarity between the two systems that we could um, work on together. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, Jackie. Thanks, Kate. So I think only a brief update for today. Um, just to let you know, we'll be putting the um, goals of care form up today, just temporarily under the information drop down, under the local health service information and updates under Barwon. Uh, but we'll aim to have it integrated within the um, sort of aged care pathway. The other um, important thing I wanted to flag is that on the initial assessment and testing, um, we've just updated the priority testing categories to include the new information about um, disability residential care as a priority testing group um, to be able to flag that on your referral forms as well. So um, lots more to come as well. We're looking at ongoing COVID care pages and our clinicians' health pages um, are live. Um, they're under the special populations drop-down. But if you search clinicians' health, that'll come up with self-care and caring for other clinicians. So thank you and we'll see you all next week. Thanks all. See you next week. If you're not registered, you can get onto Westwick PHN COVID-19 Project Echo uh, online and register for sessions. They are RACGP and ACRIM accredited and CPD certificates are available for non-GP members. See you next time. Take care.